is uh, you guys uh, gave us great questions last year, at the end of last year, and we took those questions, put them back to you. You guys got to vote on those questions on what you wanted to have us discuss on Sunday mornings. So the number 10 out of the top 10 was the topic of predestination. The question, the big question is, does God choose us or do we choose him? Now, this obviously is a very in-depth, difficult conversation to have. So what I want to ask you to do right now is to turn your chair toward the stage, toward the screens, get comfortable. And this is one of those talks that I kind of love it and I also hate it at the same time, right? It's one of those talks that I find very intellectually... Um, uh, it gets your intellectual juices flowing, we'll put it that way. It's intellectually stimulating, but at the same time, it can make your head hurt, all right? And so I want you to stay focused today, stay off your phones, just pay attention. And I don't want this to sound too academic, but it's going to get that direction a little bit, so be prepared for that as we dive into this. So here's the question, does God choose us or do we choose him? I wanted to define for you what predestination, I don't want to take for granted that everyone here has been in church your whole life, because I know most of you have not been in church your entire life, and some are going to go, predestination, like what nation is that? Where's that? So um, predestination, definition for you for that word is this idea that God chose in advance that some people would be granted eternal life through Jesus. Now, I know when you hear that, I know when you guys asked the question about predestination in the, in the survey last year, I know for some of you, the idea is this. If, if God chooses people to join him for eternity, then I can't believe in a God like that. I, I, can't, I can't fathom a God doing something like that. And I know that's what is behind the question, right? There's this idea that you have that I, I think that... that if, if I'm God, I wouldn't do it that way. That's, that's not how I would do it. And so I want to frame it right there and just let, you, let that sit for a minute. If, if that's how you've approached this question before or other questions like that, I can't believe or worship or love a God who would do fill in the blank. And it might not be this question. It might be something else. It might be a question of evil, suffering, something else that's really bothered you about God. And if you've had the question, like, I can't worship or love a God who would do fill in the blank, whatever that thing is for you, then this talk is for you today. I want to rewind, go all the way back to Genesis, just with me mentally here, um, story of Abraham and Isaac. Remember Abraham and Isaac? In Genesis chapter 15, God promises Abraham a son. Then God waits for a while. So what does Abraham do? He takes the maidservant of his wife, Sarah, and her name was? I have such great confidence in you guys that you know your Bible. Abraham's uh, wife's name was Sarah, and her maidservant name was what? Hagar, okay. So, um, so Abraham, they, they, Sarah, gives him, Sarah, Sarah gives Abraham uh, her maidservant, which don't ask, different sermon, and... Uh, and he gets Hagar pregnant. She has Ishmael. But then later on, God blesses Abraham and Sarah with a, a boy named Isaac. You remember this, right? This rings a bell. But a few years later, here's what God does. 
God says to, to uh, Abraham, he says, I'm going to ask you to sacrifice your son to me. And Abraham says, okay, and he, he obeys God. And he goes up on this mountaintop, doesn't tell Isaac what he's doing. It's one of those really twisted, weird stories where you're like, what? God asked him to do what? And so he goes up on the mountaintop, and, um, and Abraham has his son Isaac on the altar about to sacrifice his own son out of obedience to God. And then an angel appears and says, stop, stop. This whole thing was a test. This whole thing was a test. And then God provides a ram for the offering, and Isaac is spared. And it sounds like a really twisted story, but here's what God's doing, though, in that story. The whole thing was a foreshadowing of Jesus. The whole thing was a setup. It was, first of all, a test of faith for Abraham, but it was also a foreshadowing to Jesus because Jesus would be the ultimate lamb that took our place. And I tell you that story because there was a reality for Abraham. On one side of the altar for Abraham, God seemed like a contradiction. God didn't seem to make sense. I mean, put yourself in his shoes, right? At, one, at this point of his life, God seemed like a complete and utter contradiction. God almost seemed evil to ask him to do that, did he not? And so the question I want to ask you this morning is this. Are you willing to trust God even when he seems to not make any sense? Even when your little, tiny, finite mind cannot comprehend his infinite greatness? When he doesn't make sense to you, will you still worship him, live for him, love him? This side of heaven, everything doesn't make sense. This side of heaven, everything does not all fit together. So with, with that in mind, let's have a discussion on predestination. The first point I want you to know this morning is this. God is incomprehensible. And if you look at that word and say that word is incomprehensible, what that means is God cannot be fully understood. God cannot be fully understood. We cannot put... God in this little box that we've created. So I know you, the question you might ask is, well, Dave, you sit up there every Sunday and talk about how we can have a relationship with God, how we can know God, but how do you expect us to know God that we can't fully understand? And I would say it to you this way, the same way you do with people, right? Right? Do you guys fully comprehend your, your friends? No, you do not. Do you fully comprehend your parents? No, you don't. Can you have loving, trusting relationship with people that you don't fully comprehend? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And in the same way, we can have a loving, trusting relationship with God, even a God that we don't fully comprehend sometimes. I'll show you some verses that just show us how incomprehensible God really is. The first one is Psalm chapter 145, verse 3. And it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Job 26.14 says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Remember Job, the story of Job, the righteous man before God. God took basically everything that he had 
and he still worshiped God. And he could write this and say, what I know about God is the, is the outskirts of his ways. It's the suburbs. We're in the suburbs of God. We're not even in the middle. We're, we're out here in the outskirts. It's a whisper of what he's really like. And Isaiah chapter 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There are certain things that you and I cannot comprehend this side of heaven. And so what I want to do right now is I want to tell you just a brief, uh, this is kind of the academic part with some funny names, but there's some historical views on salvation. Some people in the early part of the church were trying to figure out uh, scripture and trying to figure out how this whole thing works out, this thing called salvation. So here's the first two guys I want you to know about. Uh, Go to the next slide. Um, Origin and John Chrysostom. Don't try to pronounce that. But this, is, this was their idea when it came to salvation. These two men thought, if you picture it like this, if someone is drowning, and they're drowning in a lake, they, they have this, what I call the two-hand approach. So um, it's like they're drowning, and there's someone, there's God, like a lifeguard there to rescue them. And God reaches out his hand to grab them, and they reach their hand up to grab God. It's like these two hands working together. That's how they would describe salvation. So it's basically like this. God chooses you, but you also choose God. It's like this, this sort of reciprocal relationship, right? And then the second uh, thing I want to show you is a guy named Pelagius, and he was actually a heretic, which means he was bad, very bad. And uh, if anyone says, yeah, yeah, I believe that Pelagius was right, just tell them that they're wrong and just move on, okay? Because Pelagius was very, very wrong. And uh, Pelagius was a heretic. Um, he was declared that by uh, church councils. He had this one-hand approach, and that basically is man working without God's involvement, right? So his idea was that if, if you're a, a drowning person in a lake, basically you reach up and you grab a hold of God and pull yourself out. It's like a works-based salvation type thing, which I'm thinking if God's not reaching out his hand, then what are you are you grabbing on to God's like long white beard? What, how do you even do that, right? I'm not sure about that one. Uh, so this was what we call heresy because it basically talks about a works-based salvation. He also said that, that man was not born with a sinful nature, which my two-year-old is proof that that's wrong, right? And so um, go to my next slide. This is what I would call the view that I hold and... Uh, this is St. Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to pronounce it, Augustine, St. Augustine. And he had this one-hand approach as well, but his approach was different, and it was this. God is working to save man. So basically, you're a drowning sinner, and God reaches down, and he snatches you up and saves you. That's how salvation works in his eyes. Now let me give you some scripture now that can support what I'm describing to you. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Go ahead and turn your Bibles there if you have them. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. And these are some passages, I think, that can really shed some light on this topic. 
And the one passage I wanted to get into today that I will not be able to address because of time is Romans chapter 9. And so that would take an hour by itself, Romans 9. So I was thinking about telling you to go home and read Romans 9, but I know when I tell you to read stuff, you don't do it. So don't go home and read Romans 9, all right? Uh, because if I, I'm trying to some reverse psychology here, but if you really want to see a, a passage that's hard to understand and really explains a lot of predestination um, theology, read chapter, or don't read Romans 9, and don't read Song of Solomon either, all right? Just stay away from those two sections of Scripture. And I'm sure that you'll be like, well, why is that, Dave? I'll go home and read it right now. All right, Job, uh, where am I? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. This is Paul writing. He says, and you were dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You were dead. You get that? This is not a, just a, a person drowning in a lake who's struggling for life. This is a person who's already taken in too much water and they can't breathe. They have died and God snatches them out of the water, pulls them up on the shore and breathes new life into them. This is the picture that Paul is describing. So not drowning, not struggling, but dead. Look at verses uh, four and five. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So do you see this picture? It's this idea that you didn't have, it's not like you were sort of halfway alive and said, please God, please God. It's that God snatched you up. It's that God snatched you out of the grip of death in your sin, right? By grace, you have been saved. It is a free gift to us. Look back with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. So turn back one chapter, verses uh, 3 through 5. And it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will. You know, whenever you read Paul, you realize this guy did not know how to write a sentence that was not a run-on sentence, right? This guy just would write, like, you know, clause after clause after clause and keep going and going and going. But there's certain words that jump off the page at us, and it's words like, he chose us. He predestined us. See, here's the deal. A lot of people think the word predestination was somehow invented by people like us. Like, we just had this idea and said, we're going to convince the whole world that this is the case. That's not the case. I mean, this concept comes out of Scripture, so we're not trying to impose things on Scripture. We're trying to take Scripture, what it says, and trying to interpret it and give it meaning for life. And so here's the question I want to ask you this morning. I believe what Augustine believed, that, that, that we're, we're dead in our trespasses, we are dead in our sin, and God snatches us up and saves us. 
and saves us. Here's the question I have for you this morning. I believe that God chooses us. If you believe that it's, well, it's, it's, it's God chooses me, but I also choose him. If you believe that, the question I have for you is, then who gets the credit for your salvation? Who gets the credit for your salvation? Is it 50-50, you and God? Is it 99% God, 1% you? Like, who should get the glory and credit for your salvation? This is why I believe this. This is why I believe this is true, because I believe that God gets 100% of the glory and credit for my salvation. I can't take even 1% credit for my salvation. It's all his. It's all his. Look here. It's, this whole thing is motivated by his love. This whole thing is motivated by his love. I know many people, when they hear this idea of, of predestination, they don't think of it in terms of, they're like, well, how can, God, how can God choose? How can God choose and make this decision? But here it says, this is, this is an example of his goodness. This is coming out of his love. This is coming from a place of God's goodness and God's love. Look at uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30 with me. Flip over to Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30. It's not too far from where you currently are. And again, I want to make sure you understand that there's, there's about an hour's worth of stuff we could get into this morning. I'm trying to keep this um, as concise as I can while still having the benefit of of discussing it. But Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And here's what it says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I thank God that Scripture, you have to to read it several times to really get it, right? You can't just read that and go, okay, I got it. Like, it requires us to think about it, to chew on it, which I'm I'm grateful for because it, it means we have an entire lifetime to read and study scripture. It'd be boring if we could read it in a year and be like, yeah, I got all that. I'm good. I'm good. So Paul is writing, writing to the Romans some really significant things here. He uses words like, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. We see predestined in, the, in there twice in that passage. I want you to know something this morning. The word foreknow does not mean that God just Some people see it this way. Some people think that God knows everything, which he does, and so he just looked throughout history, throughout time, and said, okay, I know who is going to choose me, therefore I'm going to choose them. That's how some view this idea of foreknowing. This is not the biblical idea of foreknowing. This biblical idea of foreknowing means that he actually looked throughout time and he chose. He chose. Right? And so I want you now to go back to um, Ephesians 2 once again. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. 
And I know we're all over the place, but this will be the last passage that we look at this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And here's what it says. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This idea of grace, here's how I define, define grace for you. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. So if you start with the idea that none of us deserve God, none of us deserve heaven, eternal life with him, if you start there, then the fact that anyone gets to be with him for eternity is by his sheer grace, by his sheer grace. So grace is getting something that you don't deserve. My son Landon is five years old. He's starting to understand this concept of grace. And here's the way I've tried to teach it to him. Usually when he gets into trouble with something, um, he loves the cartoon uh, Clifford the Big Red Dog. Any Clifford fans in here? So he loves that cartoon along with Sienna. And, and so maybe after dinner on a, on a certain evening, he might say, hey, Daddy, after I finish dinner, can I watch Clifford the Big Red Dog? And most of the time the answer is yes. But sometimes he might do something wrong between dinner and the time that that show comes on, right? And which I might say, okay, you can't do that now because you did this and you're being punished for that now. But occasionally, here's what I'll do. Occasionally I will say to him, okay, Landon, you don't deserve to watch Clifford tonight. But I'm going to let you do it. You know why? Because that's what grace is. It's getting something that you don't deserve. And I'll get preachy for a minute or two and say, you know, that's, that's what Jesus does for us. He gives us what we don't deserve. And so the other night, it was really funny. The other night, he says, he says, Daddy, can I watch Clifford? And I said, yeah, that's fine. But then he, like, I think pushed his sister. did something kind of crazy, something bad. And I said, Landon, listen, you don't deserve to watch Clifford. And he goes, but you're still going to let me watch Clifford, right? And I said, now, hang on. I go, yes, I am. And he goes, I knew you were going to say that, Daddy. I said, why is that? And he goes, because I know what grace is. And I'm going, okay, that's, that's, that's cute and everything, but I don't always, I'm not that big of a pushover, all right? This happens very infrequently, but occasionally, because I want him to know what grace is, I will bend and say, you don't deserve this, but I'm going to give it to you because this is what grace, this is what Jesus does for us. This is what grace is. So grace is getting something that we don't deserve. Here's the idea. None of us deserve salvation. None of us. All of us deserve eternal separation from God. And let me just say this. I think what I just said to you is the thing that we have trouble believing the most. Because not many of us really want to believe that, do we? None of us want to believe that I really deserve eternal separation from God. Like, we don't think that we're that evil. We don't think that we're that bad. I struggle with that. You struggle with that. But if you start with the idea that none of us deserve salvation, and the fact that he saves anyone is out of his sheer grace then this idea is a little bit more palatable for you, I believe. A guy named Mark Driscoll said this. He said, 
When we understand our condition as sinners, the question is not how can a loving God send anyone to hell, but rather how can a just and holy God allow anyone into heaven? That is the real question. And I know that's the one that is the, the, the most difficult for us to accept. When you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, salvation is not of our own doing. It is a free gift. And if you look at the passage, even the faith, even the faith to believe is a gift from him. So it's not like you can say, okay, I heard the gospel and I believed, yay me. Look at me. I had the faith to believe. This passage even says, even the faith to believe is a gift from him to you. And you might say, but, but I remember that time that someone preached the gospel to me, told me about Jesus, and I felt my heart stirred up, and I wanted to respond. But guess what? Guess who was stirring up your heart? The Holy Spirit. I believe it is impossible for someone to come to know Jesus without the Holy Spirit prompting them, prompting them, and stirring up. Otherwise, once again, who takes the credit for your salvation if that's not true? That means you take credit, not God. God gets the glory for salvation. Salvation. And what I want to do now is there's a little, um, I don't want to call it an argument, but I guess it is an argument. Uh, go to my next slide. There's a little thing that I think through whenever someone says to me that they don't really believe this in the way that I'm presenting it to you right now. Um, here's what I'll say to them, not in a argumentative kind of way, but just a get them thinking kind of way. And um, my first point is this. So here's, so I'm going to pretend right now that everyone in the room does not believe what I just presented to you right now. That you, that you say, no, Dave, I believe in the two-hand approach that God chooses us, but we also choose him back or vice versa. We choose him and he chooses us back, whatever you want to call it. Um, so let's just say that you guys believe that. That's what you believe, whether you do or you don't. But here's what you have to agree with me on, right? Number one, you agree with me that God created everyone and everything, correct? We agree on that. Point number two, if you believe that, point number two, you also uh, agree with me that God knows everything, correct? Right? He's all-knowing. He's all-knowing. So number three, here's what I would say. So even if you believe that people choose God and then God chooses them back, even if you believe that, you still have to admit that God created people that he knew would never choose him, right? If God knows everything and he created everyone and everything, then you also have to admit that he created people that he knew would never choose him, right? And this, I think, is one of the most, to me, it's, it's like, I don't know where else you land, right? Because to me, what's the difference between that and predestination? What's the difference? It really ends up being the same. You have to admit, we, we know that scriptures say that some people end up eternally separated from God, right? Scriptures say that. So if we're going to admit to that, and we also admit that God knows everything, then we're kind of stuck, right? And I don't know a way out of this idea of predestination. Now here's what I want to, 
also say in relation to this. Can someone be a Christian and not believe what I presented to you this morning in the way that I presented it? Here's the answer. Yes. Yes. If you don't believe what Pelagius believed, right? Don't believe that guy. But if you believe in what some people will say is an Arminian take on salvation, meaning that it's, it's somehow God and man um, kind of cooperating together here. There are, there are plenty of people that are God-fearing, Christ-loving Christians that believe that or a nuanced version of that. Um, ever hear of C.S. Lewis, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia? Um, this was his belief. Was he a Christian? Yes, he was. So if someone loves Jesus, believes the essentials of the gospel, but they have a different take on this than what I, what, what I might have, as long as it's not one that says that man does all the work, right, like Pelagius believe, then I would say that person is, is, if they love Christ and want to follow Christ and they've submitted their life to him, then I would say they're, they're a Christian, right? But I would just say we disagree. I would say we disagree, but I would still say they're a Christian. We don't break fellowship with them over this issue, okay? Now, there, there are what I would call essential beliefs to be a Christian, things like what I would call closed-handed issues. We don't negotiate on these kinds of things, meaning the Bible's true. Um, we believe in the Trinity. God is one but three persons. We believe that humans are sinners. We believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. We believe that Jesus died and was buried and resurrected in our place for our sins. We also believe that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Those are what I would call essential doctrines of the Christian faith. If you don't believe these things, I would say that you're not a Christian, right? But they're what I would call open-handed things, non-essential beliefs. These are things like predestination, things like the worship style that you choose to have in your church, ways of baptizing someone, spiritual gifts being exercised in the body of Christ. Some churches speak in tongues, some churches don't. I would still say that we are in fellowship with those people. So I want you to get this. There are essential and non-essential beliefs. This predestination idea is what I would call a non-essential belief. It's in that second category. Now what I want to do to close out is just boil this down for you. Why in the world does all of this even matter? I'll tell you why I think it matters. First of all, if you're in the room this morning and you, or you have the question, well, that's all well and good, Dave, but how do I know I'm chosen? How do I know I'm, I belong to Jesus? How do I know he's chosen me, right? If, if that's your question, then I would say this. If you have a lot of angst about that, you're worried about that, if, if, you're, if you're like, hey, I've been walking through life thinking I'm a Christian, then here's my response to you. Then I think that you are. I think that you are. I don't think you have to worry and fret about, oh, God's going to trick me. God's, God's tricking me into this whole thing. That's not, that's not the God that we serve. That's not the God that we serve. That's one question that you might have. Another question you might have is, why should I share my faith then? What's the point of sharing the gospel if God really does all the work? What's the point of that? Here's what I would say to you. 
He has chosen, he has chosen you for salvation, but he has also chosen you to share that salvation with other people. He predestines the ends and he predestines the means. He has predestined you to share your faith, right? He's going to use you to share your faith. He's going to use you to share your faith with someone else who also might come to know Jesus as their Savior. Also, once again, you've got Jesus only to thank for your salvation. You've got Jesus only to thank for your salvation and no one else. And no one else. Jesus only. We also talked about how God is incomprehensible. He cannot be fully understood by the human mind. And so, if you accept that truth now, on this topic of predestination, it will free you to love Him, to worship Him, to live for Him, I think in all areas of your life. Because here's what I believe. I believe that if you're going to let this one little topic throw you off track, then what's going to happen in your life later on is you'll let something else throw you off track. You'll let the issue of pain and suffering, evil, you'll let something else throw you off track if you let this throw you off track. And so if you can understand the idea that, yes, I can't fully comprehend and understand God in the here and now, but I'm going to believe this in faith, even when it might not make sense, just like Abraham on one side of the altar, things didn't seem to make sense. God seemed like a contradiction. And I know for many of you this morning right now, as we discuss this, and as you think about and reflect on your own life, you might have that same thought. Right now, God doesn't make sense. Right now, God seems like a contradiction. But I want to encourage you to have the faith of Abraham that as you walk through this life on this side of heaven, and God doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes, that you would latch onto the faith, latch onto your faith in Christ in the same way that Abraham latched onto his belief in God and trusting that God was good. That you would latch onto it in the same way. Now, I want to also address if you're someone who is, you would not consider yourself a Christian this morning, you would say, Man, this makes me not want to be one. This discussion makes me, this just confirms why I don't want anything to do with this God that you talk about. If that's where you stand this morning, if you're the person that says, yes, I cannot, if that's how God works, then I cannot worship a God who does that, fill in the blank. And what I would say to you is this. If that's your stance, I would encourage you to stop playing philosophical, intellectual games with God and just fall on your face and turn and repent. Turn and repent. That's my encouragement to you, if that's where you stand this morning. Because here's what you were doing. Think about, think about this for a moment. If you as a human down here are looking at God and saying, God, if you do things this way, then I cannot worship you, I cannot follow you. Look at what you have done if you say that statement. You have made yourself God. You have put yourself, you, you're a little human down here on earth. You are judging God 
and you have this little rule book that you're following, and you're saying, if God does things this way, then I cannot worship him. You are putting yourself now in the position of God, and you are judging your creator. And this is true of any of us, even Christians. If your life is going a certain way and you don't like it, and you're mad at God for that, you're doing the exact same thing. You are judging your creator, and you've assumed the role of God, and you were treating him like he's a creation. And so I encourage you to not play philosophical, intellectual games with God and just turn and repent and say, God, I want to worship you. You are God. I am not. I know I can't understand everything fully in the here and now, but I want to have the faith of Abraham. I want to submit my life to you. That should be your response. That should be your response. When I was at a a previous church as an intern, we'd get in these great discussions about this kind of thing, and there was one kid that would say things to me like, "Um, well, you know, if that's the way it is, then I'm just going to live my life how I want, and when God wants to take me, he'll take me, meaning snatch me up and save me, to which I just said, man, how tragic, how tragic is that? Because I will admit to you, there's a certain element to this where you go, yeah, I I preach to you, I preach to you, and I present the gospel to you, and I want you, I'll say things like, you know, make a decision today to follow Jesus, submit your life to him, surrender to him, and if you find yourself stirring when I say those kinds of things, that means the Holy Spirit is actively working in your life, and I'm encouraging you to respond to him. So I'm saying all this to you that I'm trying to balance scripture with our experience a bit. And I say, look, Scripture is authoritative. It, it has authority over our experience. And so even though you think in your mind that, yeah, I'm making this choice, I mean, God's, I, I'm choosing God, we know that from Scripture that God is working in you. He is stirring things up in you. And that's my encouragement to you today. And so I know this is going to create I anticipate this talk creating a lot of chaos, and I'm okay with that. But here's what I want to do. Um, I want to give you some resources to kind of think through and pray through um, as you think about these kinds of things. One of those things will just be your discussion at your tables here in a few moments. Um, But I'm also going to post a sermon that I heard this past week online that also addresses this in much greater greater detail. And I also want to have... I photocopied up here at the front. There's a, about 30 copies of this. So if we, have, if we need more, we can make more. But these are common questions that this topic might stir up in you and questions that you might have. So if you want a copy, they're up here on the stage. If I have to make more, I can do that um, in the coming uh, week or so. But go ahead and discuss at your tables. You guys should have discussion sheets, I believe, right? If you don't have the sheets, I think Vicki has them. Where's Vicki? She's over here. Okay, they're up on top of the, uh, the Sabbath if you don't have those. So go ahead and discuss at your tables and pray uh, to close out.